This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattle bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Community or Chaos is back again, and we have with us Matt Fuller. Fuller, sorry. Thank you. Who was born and raised in Virginia, USA, outside of Washington, D.C. He recently became a trained explosives ordnance disposal technician uh, with uh, demining landmines, mine action training, MAT, in Kosovo, and is currently a Ph.D. student at the University of Otago. Before that, he was a... Philosophy lecturer at St. Philip's College in San Antonio, Texas. Before going to Texas, he worked for various NGOs in Washington, D.C. And the Corimelia Peace and Reconciliation Center in Northern Ireland. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. Matt, can you talk about the upcoming conference, Nuclear Connections Across the Oceania, and your role in the conference? Thank you very much, Marvin. I'm really happy to be here. Um, and thank you for that introduction. Very pleasant to, to hear about my work. Um, I am going to be one of the speakers at the Nuclear Connections Across Oceania uh, conference here in Dunedin uh, from Friday to Saturday, the 25th to the 26th of November. Um, it's going to start at 9 a.m. and at about 5 p.m. Uh, both days. Uh, it's going to be at St. Margaret's College, which is one of the buildings on campus at the University of Otago. If people are unfamiliar with the campus, St. Margaret's is sort of right in the middle, uh, just a little bit uh, um, east of the clock tower and uh, a little bit uh, up from the nearest parking lot, actually. It's one of the few places on campus that has really good parking. And I am very happy about this conference. We've really put together what I think is going to be a great two days. Um, again, it's about nuclear connections across Oceania. Uh, we've done a really good job of getting speakers from all across Oceania. Obviously, there will be people from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, there will be speakers from 
Hawaii, Polynesia, uh, we'll have uh, Fijian speakers, Samoan speakers, um, we'll have speakers from the Marshall Islands, um, we'll have uh, also speakers from Australia, uh, Japan, Canada, the United States, of course, myself included, um, and and we'll be able to present a lot of different viewpoints on a lot of big issues. So we'll be talking about everything from nuclear testing and the legacy of nuclear testing, the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. Um, we'll be talking about New Zealand's own um, anti-nuclear movement. Uh, I'll be talking personally about uh, the campaign to ban depleted uranium in New Zealand. Uh, our keynote address, I'm particularly proud of this, will be done by a woman named Hilda Halkyad Harawira. Uh, she just won her election uh, up on the North Island, and she'll be coming down to talk to our conference. Uh, and she's uh, a Maori rights activist, an indigenous rights activist, and was uh, an early member of the anti-nuclear movement in New Zealand. And so I'm very happy that we have her uh, coming to give the keynote address. I'd particularly actually like to thank Disarm Secure Aotearoa um, and their former leader, Kate Dews, for putting us in touch with Hilda Halkyad Harawira. Um, that was uh, really great. And uh, of course, uh, Disarm Secure has been a real uh, friend to uh, the uh, TAOR, Peace and Conflict Studies Center, uh, on campus. So um, we're really happy to be doing this, uh, and, and I specifically wanted to highlight those people. We're going to have a lot of speakers, actually, uh, indigenous speakers in particular, and speakers from the early days of the anti-nuclear movement in the 1980s. We're really happy they were able to come up. Uh, perhaps one of the most interesting people we'll have talking is a woman named uh, Toshiko Tanaka, who herself survived the atomic bombing of Hiroshima uh, when she was six years old. Uh, so she's a Haibakusha. And she'll be flying in from Japan to give the speech in person. And since her time uh, as a little kid, you know, she's grown up, she's had a whole life since then, she's actually become quite an accomplished artist, um, particularly in enamel, uh, sorry, enamel uh, mural arts. And so she'll be talking about her arts and her peace activism um, and her experience of surviving the atomic bomb. Uh, and, and that's just one of our many speakers. So we're going to have speakers from all across uh, the Pacific, all across Oceania, um, all across different fields and uh, studies. We're going to have artists. We're going to have um, poets. We're going to have breakout sessions. We're going to have uh, political activists. We're going to have politicians. I mean, it's really going to be a, a great conference. And I'm really hoping that people in and around the area are able to just come on down. Uh, we still have the ability to register for the conference. As I said, it's called Nuclear Connections Across Oceania. And you can find it on Facebook. Uh, you can find it on Eventbrite. Um, it's very easy to register. If you want to come in person, we still have some open spots. Um, it's also very easier to register online. We're going to be doing the whole conference uh, online as well. So if you get the Eventbrite invite, you'll have great links to come and watch the conference online. Right now, we actually have a couple hundred people registered online, and I'm really happy about that. So there will be people from all over the world, um, from Japan to the U.S., uh, across the planet, um, listening to the conference as it's happening here in Dunedin. And I'm really happy about that. Uh, I specifically will be presenting at 9 a.m., so uh, selfishly, uh, <laughs> make sure you come to that one. Uh, my, my panel 
which I'll be co-presenting with a number of speakers actually is at uh, 9 a.m. or more accurately 9.40 a.m. on uh, nuclear events and their aftermaths. And I'll be co-presenting with uh, Catherine Eigner, Steve Abel, and Edwina Hughes. And we'll be talking about all sorts of issues around uh, nuclear events and their aftermaths, the Rainbow Warrior, um, the Maralinga nuclear testing sites, the treaty to ban uh, or the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Uh, and of course, I'll, as I said, we'll be talking about uh, depleted uranium and the campaign to ban depleted uranium in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, so again, if you're listening, uh, I hope you can make it anytime, Friday or Saturday. If you're doing the Zoom conference, you know, uh, if you register as an online guest on Eventbrite, feel free to come and go as you please. If you're doing it in person, uh, don't worry. We are providing the Kai, uh, so don't worry about missing lunch. We'll be having uh, food at the conference. And as I said, it's one of the few places on campus where it's easy to find a parking spot. So I really hope that we can uh, get good attendance on this conference. I'm really happy to be presenting. I'm really happy that we've got such great speakers speakers coming. Thanks for that, Matt. Matt, it was uh, well uh, presented so people know what they'll be um, listening to and participating in on uh, Friday and Saturday. What led you into taking up research on depleted uranium? Oh boy, yeah, that's a that's quite a long story, but I'll try to keep it short for the folks listening on the radio right now. Um, it really goes all the way back, probably to when I was a little kid. I was actually really interested in nuclear issues. I blame this on my dad. He really loved Godzilla movies, so we watched Godzilla movies all the time, and and not just Godzilla, but also stuff like them, uh, where you know there's nuclear testing out in Nevada, and it makes the ants gigantic, and then the ants terrorize the city. Uh, my dad just loved these movies. I would say his his like favorite genre of movie is probably drawing room mysteries, like Agatha Christie stuff. But his second favorite genre movie is definitely radiation hits something that's small, makes it giant, and it attacks the nearby town. And so even when I was a little kid, I, I remember other kids would just be, you know, we'd have a little journal that we'd keep. And other kids would be drawing pictures about what they did that day or fun trips with their family. And I'd be drawing pictures of Godzilla. And I just had this real fascination with that. And then eventually, you know, the interest in the films and the cartoons and stuff became an interest in the real thing. Um, I, I had... A lot of interest in nuclear issues from that time. I remember I had a really hard time when I took physics and chemistry. I just had a really hard time with the science. But the thing that I always was good at was the nuclear stuff. So once we got to isotopes and, and you know, uh, radiation and, and Marie Curie and all that stuff, I, suddenly I was getting really good grades in that stuff. It just seemed to click with my mind. Um, and I found myself especially interested in depleted uranium actually from a young age. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, it was about two 2001 and there were a lot of stories at that time about depleted uranium and I remember being in middle school and reading about it and thinking about how awful it was and just how horrible of a weapon this was and that it should be banned and and I would tell my classmates about it and they're like oh that's awful <laughs> I remember I was in a heavy metal band when I was in high school and we were batting around names what should we name the band and I said how about depleted uranium that's like literally a heavy metal and uh, they said, okay, what is depleted uranium? What does it do? And I described what it did. And they were all like, okay, maybe that's a little too heavy. Even for us, that's a little too heavy. So I said, okay. But it never really left my mind. I always thought that it was a subject that was incredibly important, but 
you know, had really fallen off the radar. And in recent years, I think it's really fallen off the radar. And just not a lot of people know what it is or know the damage it does. Uh, and so as I started to apply to PhD programs a couple of years ago, as you mentioned in my intro, I was a lecturer at St. Philip's College in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, you can be a lecturer at a polytechnic in the U.S. with a master's degree. But, you know, I, I realized if I, if I was going to move forward, I needed to get a PhD. So when I started applying to PhD programs, one of the things about a PhD, of course, is that it has to be original research. And so I found myself saying, well, what's nobody studying? And sure enough, nobody was really doing a PhD on uh, campaigns to ban depleted uranium. If you're looking at disarmament campaigns, there's lots of great PhDs on landmines and cluster munitions and all sorts of stuff, but nobody was really looking at depleted uranium. So it was a place that I had already had a passion for, that I'd already been very interested in since I was a kid, really. And I found myself really wanting to take that on and, and look at it at an in-depth level. And as I said, nobody was doing a PhD in it, so I went for it. And I got accepted at the University of Otago. I'm very grateful for that. Um, uh, special thanks to uh, Kevin Clements and um, and uh, Richard Jackson for seeing the value of my PhD and fighting for me to get a spot at the school down here. And uh, I'm really happy about that. And of course, also special thanks to Fabian Medvecki, who's my current, uh, one of my current advisors uh, from the science communication department. So um, in case people at home don't know, since I've been talking about how I got interested in studying it, I should probably say what it is, uh, just in case they didn't hear my last interview with you about a year and a half ago. Um, depleted uranium is the leftover byproduct of uh, enriched uranium. Basically, you have natural uranium that you mine in a uranium mine. You then put it through a process where you pull out as much um, of the U-235 isotope as you can. And uh, that becomes the enriched uranium. That's what you want for uh, atomic bombs and nuclear power plants. But the leftover uranium is depleted uranium because it's been depleted of its enriched uranium. And it is the majority. Like, you definitely wind up with way more depleted uranium than you have enriched uranium. And for decades, as they were building bombs and building nuclear power plants, they would just be mining the stuff, processing the stuff, and then just leaving the depleted uranium sitting around in vats. Nothing to do with it. They didn't know what to do with it. And finally, in the 1970s or so, somebody thought to themselves, hey, this stuff is harder and heavier than lead, it would make a great weapon. And so people started to put tank shells, uh, make tank shells with depleted uranium. And not only is it harder and heavier than lead, it's also self-sharpening and it burns. It's one of the few metals that's pyrophoric, which means it actually burns. Uh, and so it gives the added, I guess, bonus, if you're in the weapons industry, uh, of of burning and imploding and, and also, as I said, being very hard and heavy, it's a great armor-piercing weapon. So it got picked up. A lot of countries uh, have made weapons out of it. I think at this point we're coming up to about 20 countries that use it in their arsenals. Um, and uh, they include all the ones that you're thinking of, you know, the U.S., Great Britain, France, uh, Russia, China, Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia, and then probably some countries you might not expect, like uh, you know Oman and 
and uh, United Arab Emirates and places like that. But I mean, a lot of countries use this in their weapon stockpiles. Um, and it's just uh, it's just a waste product, so it's very cheap. It's uh, very effective in its ability to destroy an enemy tank. But after the battle is over, you know, it just sits there. And, and the efforts to clean it up have been very lackluster. I was actually in Bosnia this summer. We'll talk about my time in Kosovo. After I left Kosovo, I did a little road trip around the Balkans trying to interview people for my Ph.D., and I interviewed a guy in, in Bosnia who had worked on the the um, the explosive remnants of war issue who had worked first off literally just on demining. He'd been an EOD like me, um, but he also uh, became a political science professor at the University of Sarajevo. And he was just telling me that they put together this great plan to clean up depleted uranium drop sites in Bosnia and they cleaned up one of them and they were really happy with their work and then all their funding got pulled and there's still 19 more sites that they never got around to cleaning so you know and that's just Bosnia it's even worse in other places and so you go to a place like Iraq where it was used on a far larger scale than it was used in in um, Bosnia and you just look around most of it has never been cleaned up and Everywhere where it was used, you know, a couple of years later, they just saw huge spikes in cancer rates and birth defects rates, um, particularly rates of, of leukemia, rates of breast cancer, uh, you know, higher rates of childhood mortality. Um, and it's been linked now to depleted uranium. There have been uh, we talked about a year ago about this, and there are scientific studies that now show very clear uh, evidence of its linkages to deplete of the languages between the rise in you know leukemia and um, infant mortality and the uh, and the use of depleted uranium and uh, and this is a very important issue it's obviously you know killing people decades after the battles actually took place and the movements to ban depleted uranium have been successful in some places but mostly they've they've really struggled in other places and new zealand sadly was one of the countries where they wanted to ban depleted uranium i should note that new zealand does not use it in its arsenal but it was going to ban the use of depleted uranium first off just preemptively but second off they were going to ban um, banks new zealand banks from investing in companies that made depleted uranium and they were going to ban the movement of depleted uranium through new zealand harbors which is important because australia exported a lot of depleted uranium back in the day um and uh that bill got all the way to parliament and then it fell by one vote just one vote and uh that's a little preview of what i'll be talking about on uh saturday morning uh but that is where one of my big case studies for my research is and it's a very interesting case study of a movement that had a lot of uh um momentum but then uh, at the moment that they were about to vote on the bill, you know, fell that one vote short. And, and there's a possibility maybe that movement could start again. Maybe we could ban depleted uranium sometime in the near future. But, you know, uh, it all starts with people talking about it. It all starts with people knowing about what depleted uranium is and, and why it's a problem and, and uh, how to move forward. So, yeah, that's a very long answer to your question. But I've basically been studying the stuff since I was in eighth grade. And here I am getting a Ph.D. in it. All right. The next thing you, one of the next things you did was you took, recently took on training in explosive ordnance and mine disposal in Kosovo. Can you talk about that? Why you did it? How you got into onto the program? Yeah. So if we want to talk about, uh, well, maybe start with. 
why I did it, since that's the first thing you asked. I had been interested in this work for a very long time. Um, way back in 2013, uh, there's a, a program run by the Halo Trust uh, where they take on people and sort of take them from uh, the absolute bottom level and then they train them over the course of two years and uh, put them in charge of an operation somewhere in the world where Halo Trust is working as their way of sort of building a pool of people that uh, can easily be deployed to lots of different countries that they need to work in. And I applied to that and uh, got really far along in the interview process. But sadly, right at the end, right when they were actually going to fly me over to Scotland uh, to do the final interview, um, a bunch of things happened at the Halo Trust. And I wound up uh, not being able to fly over. And then uh, a year later, uh, you know, I tried to get in touch with them again and, and the uh the position had changed and all the people i had interviewed with or many of the people i'd interviewed with were no longer there and so you know um i said well at this point i'm a lecturer in texas i'm i'm living a good life but the idea that this was a field i wanted to contribute to this was a thing that i wanted to do never left me so even way back then i was already you know thinking about doing a phd in weapons banning campaigns and stuff like that uh, so since 2013, when I applied to the Halo Trust, I had it in my mind, this is a way that I could really make a practical impact in piecework. I got my degree, uh, my, my undergraduate degree in international relations, but I found that a lot of international relations studies was really focused on power politics and realism and and Machiavellianism in a way that would make Machiavelli himself blush. I found that without an ethical core, international relations studies could really miss the mark. It could really just be all about who's winning the game as opposed to how are people being affected by the things that are happening. You know, um, and I really didn't want to go down that route. I really wanted to have a deeper core an ethical core to the things that I was doing. Uh, so luckily, my master's degree was actually in ethics, peace, and global affairs. And that's when I sort of got into peace studies from that vantage point. And when I was doing that, you know, I really liked studying the topics, but I really felt like, you know, I'm writing all these papers, but outside of, you know, my teachers or, you know, maybe I could get one published somewhere, who's really going to read them? And I really wanted to find a way to do practical work. And I remember I did a, a trip down to the Cherokee Nation in North Carolina um, with the with the um, with the college with the AU Methodists, and and I just uh, we went to this guy's house, and his house was very dilapidated, and and part of the reason we were there was we were doing this you know um this alternative spring break approach this this mission work if you will um not converting anybody uh, the guy was already a methodist um but uh just trying to help people out and i got put in charge of just building a, a flight of stairs and that was my job the, the flight of stairs to get to his house was broken so they said matt just build a flight of stairs and so i said okay so all by myself i sat there and i built a flight of stairs and when i finally finished the flight of stairs and had it nailed in I, I felt so much more accomplishment from building that flight of stairs than I ever had from any paper I'd ever written. 
And I thought, this is really practical. This guy's going to be able to use these stairs every day. Like, this this has done more than any research paper, I think, um, that at least I had written. Obviously, other people have written very impactful research papers. I still have an academic mind. I still want to do research and publish, and I enjoy writing, and I enjoy getting news out there about, you know, topics that fascinate me. And, and hopefully those do have an impact. But I also wanted to do practical work. And the idea that I could do this kind of work, could do explosives ordnance disposal, could get rid of landmines, that really, um, as I said, never left me from that first application in 2013. And so as I was coming to the end of my PhD, I submit on the 31st of January, fingers crossed, and um, I found that if I could if I could get this training done in this little window where I where I had time, where I was going to go to Europe anyways to interview people for my PhD, you know, regardless, I said if I could use this window and I could actually do this training, I would really be happy. I'd really be able to work practically in the field as well as academically because, you know, I think combining the two things is actually where the real strength lies, not saying one's better than the other, but saying they can work together. You can, you know, be publishing and writing and researching, but also helping people in a very direct way at the same time. Uh, and so I looked all over the world trying to find a good spot uh, that did um, training for explosives ordnance disposal um, that wasn't for the military or the police. Because uh, obviously, you know, there's a lot of in-house training for that in the military and police departments all, all over the world. And uh, Mines Action and Training Kosovo, actually, it's just called Matt Kosovo. Everybody just calls it Matt Kosovo. But that might be confusing to the, li those, the listeners because my name's Matt Fuller. So they might think that I run it, but I don't. I definitely don't. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's a great organization. Uh, it's in Peja, Kosovo. Uh, all the the teachers there um, had decades of experience. I mean, at least a decade, and many of them had 20 or 30 years of experience doing uh, mine clearance or uh, explosives ordnance disposal. And it was just about uh, the best experience I could have asked for. It was seven weeks, um, really intensive work. You know, you started in the morning, you did classes all day, you studied at night, and then in the morning they took you out and they would do this thing, they were called reckies, um, where you'd walk around and they had a bunch of uh, unexploded bombs. Well, they were all had the explosives taken out, so there was no danger from them. But, you know, they would just have it in the ground and you just have to identify it. And so, you know, sometimes it would be turned over or a little bit buried or something like that. And you just have to look at the tail fin and be like, okay, that's a mortar. Uh, it's it, it has been fired. So, you know, we should consider this mortar dangerous and, and all these other things that you're looking for, all these signs about, you know, what type of unexploded ordinance is it? What type of uh, situation are you in? Is it a dangerous? Can you move it or not move it? Does it have to be destroyed in place or can it be picked up and moved somewhere else and destroyed? Um, and it was just one thing after another after another. And so you were trying to find different kinds of um, devices and, and really have an in-depth knowledge of all the different kinds of unexploded ordnance. And we basically did that every other day um, and really became quite good at being able to identify these very strange weapons because they they managed to have a good cache of them i mean there's just there's lots of stuff you'd expect you know just world war ii era mortar shells and stuff like that but then they'd have some little thing that you've never heard of in your life never seen before i remember one of the ones they had was a grenade from the year 1900 and we all looked at it we all thought it was a perfume bottle <laughs> it was just crazy uh, because the grenades used to look so different um and uh 
and so you know they were really trying to teach us about all the weird stuff that you could come across and and it was just invaluable training and it ended with you know uh, an in-depth test it ended with uh, uh, having to do scenarios and indeed we went to Montenegro at one point and we actually did disarm uh, live unexploded rounds and so my one of my final exams was that I disarmed a 120 millimeter mortar an actual live round uh, but I did that I, I can say for the rest of my life even if I just wind up doing work in academia I did indeed disarm a 120 millimeter mortar uh, in Montenegro uh, hopefully I'll have a have a job where I can uh, keep on helping people and keep on um, getting rid of these terrible weapons but uh, it was a great training it was really great staff really great lecturers um it was just about the best food you could have asked for they they all our lunches were covered all our dinners were covered and it was the the people don't know about balkans cooking but i'm telling you you're missing out it's really good food you gotta if you can find a balkans restaurant you really need to go there uh so i was i was very happy with my time at matt kosovo did it um strike you this was fairly hazardous work yeah, I mean, I think it would be foolish to say that it's safe work. It's definitely um, a, a, a line of work that has inherent danger in it. It's it's not um, it's not always going to be safe. But I should also note that there's a lot of misperceptions about it from the outside. Um, so, for instance, when I said that I, uh, you know, disarmed this mortar, uh, I made a device that was able to disarm it from a distance. And so I didn't actually have to get up close and personal and, like, unscrew the fuse. That's not what I had to do. Um, and, and indeed, uh, it was – it was I, – I was – inside of a concrete bunker when the mortar actually got disarmed um, when I you know hit the switch to disarm the mortar um, and so uh, I think a lot of people have seen the hurt locker and they just say oh that must be how it is all the time but that movie is very inaccurate film <laughs> and uh, it's a, not saying it's a bad film it's quite a quite a, a good film cinematically but it doesn't really reflect what a person like me would do um it first off it's set in a military environment and even then it's if from a military perspective there's a lots of inaccuracies um but in terms of demining it's a lot of really you know slow and steady wins the race you're very cautious you approach things very cautiously you're always trying to follow a standard set of operating procedures of safety procedures that is very high level you don't go around you know being sloppy or doing anything like that i think people that know me know that i'm the guy that if i'm riding a bicycle i'm always wearing a helmet if i'm in a car i always have a seatbelt on i'm triple vaccinated and i still you know always wear my mask in the grocery store uh it's it's uh, a lifestyle that in fact fits me very well because i'm the kind of person that ticks all the boxes before i do something i'm the kind of person that goes through and sees you know what needs to be done how do you do this as safely as possible and um and that's what the job is it's really about being safe being slow being cautious really observing making sure that you measure twice cut once it's it's that kind of thing so again it's it's not that it doesn't have any danger. Of course, it's dangerous work, um, but it is much less dangerous than people think. The movies have not portrayed the job accurately. Okay. We're going to probably play um, The Ghost of Tom Joad because you mentioned you liked it. Yeah, yeah, sure.
walking along the railroad tracks Going someplace and there's no going back Highway patrol choppers coming up over the ridge Hot soup on a campfire in the bridge Shelter line stretching around the corner Welcome to the new world home Family sleeping in the car in the southwest No home, no job, no peace, no rest Well, the highway is alive tonight Nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire line Searching for the ghost of Tom Joe He pulls a prayer book out of his sleeping bag Preacher lights up a butt and takes a drag Waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last In a cardboard box near the underpass Got a one-way ticket to the promised land
That was the ghost of Tom Joad uh, with Bruce Springsteen. And you can podcast this um, interview with Matt Filler. Fuller, sorry. Yeah. By going to oar.org.nz and then going to um, podcast and going to Community Chaos. And you can also remember on the 25th and 26th, uh, Friday and Saturday, you can go to the uh, conference on uh, nuclear connections across Oceania. Well, you seem to have moved from teaching philosophy to doing peace studies and becoming adept at military technology. Do you want to talk about this transformation? Yeah. Um I really enjoyed my time as a teacher at St. Philip's College. I, I really liked um, my colleagues. I really liked my students a lot. And I found that um, the, the time that I was there and the students that I taught, uh, especially you know, at a community college in the U.S., which is kind of like a polytechnic in New Zealand. I, I referred to it earlier as a polytechnic, but it also has another aspect to it where um, for the U.S., uh, we do four-year universities instead of three-year universities. And you can save a ton of money if you do your first two years at a community college. And then you can take your credits and transfer to uh, a four-year university and start as, as at your third year. Uh, and so for a lot of students, you know, they're getting a terminal degree. They're getting their technical degree. Maybe it's in, you know, um, auto tech or it's in nursing or, you know, it's in culinary arts, um, all sorts of stuff like that. Or you could want to do, let's say, a philosophy degree or a political science degree or something and just do uh, your first two years at a community college and then transfer. So it's very different from the New Zealand system. But as a result, you have a really interesting mix of people in the room. So when I was teaching there at St. Philip's, you know, um, I had lots of students that were going to be medical students. I, all of the medical students, all the nursing students, the radiologists, etc., they all had to take ethics. And I used to tell them, look, nobody wants the nurse that failed ethics because a lot of them didn't really want to take like a philosophy class. They, were, they, they, were, they thought that that was a little bit outside of, of what the degree should have. It was like, hey, nobody wants the nurse that failed ethics. Um, and uh, and then I'd also get lots of students from the culinary department and, and, as I said, the other technical schools. But then I'd also get a lot of students that were out of high school, that just come out of high school, and uh, they wanted to get a four-year degree, and but they didn't know what they wanted to major in yet, so they didn't want to waste a bunch of money um, at a four-year school. And instead, they'd go to community college, see what they liked, and then move on to a four-year degree after that. And so it was a very interesting mix of people. You got you know a lot of 18-year-olds that were right out of high school, but you also had a lot of people starting their second jobs, second careers uh, more accurately. Uh, you had a lot of people that had just gotten out of the military, a lot of um, uh, military veterans that would be in the room. Uh, and then, especially, as I said, with those people starting their second careers, some of them sort of came upon the idea of wanting to start their second careers way later in life. And so I think I was thinking about this the other day. I think in every single class I taught, you know, if I taught five classes a semester, which was a pretty normal load for me, um, Every single class I taught, you know, 40 students a class, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of students over the course of the five years, five and a half years that I taught there. Um, I don't think I had a single class where I didn't have both a kid right out of high school 
and a grandparent in every single class. And so that's just the age difference. Uh, you can imagine all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, people from different countries, uh, all different races and religions. It was really a great room to teach ethics. You'd throw out a topic and you'd see what this array of people in the room would think. And you could get all kinds of answers you weren't expecting. That was for sure. And I just had a total blast teaching there. And, you know, I, I realized at a certain point it was time to move on. But I do still um, miss my time there. I really enjoyed uh, working in San Antonio. But as I said, um, for me, the practical aspect never left me. I really enjoyed the academics. I really enjoyed teaching. But I really wanted to do something with my hands as well. And then, as I said as well, I wanted to have a PhD. So even if I did go back to academia, I would be in a better position to try to get jobs. Um, I, I should note that the entire time that I was, or just about the entire time that I was teaching at St. Philip's College, I was also a disaster action volunteer at the local Red Cross in San Antonio, Texas. Now that I'm uh, in New Zealand, I've been volunteering with the Red Cross here in New Zealand as well. Um, and so, you know, I might be teaching a class on Thursday and then Friday night I'd be, you know, running a shelter for uh, flood victims. And I mean, that was something I did as well. And so that was really important to me. And again, I thought if I could somehow really take my career to the next level, my life uh, goals, you know, was to combine my interest in the um, the banning of these weapons and also in the practical understanding of them. And, and it all flowed from that place. And I feel like I was doing that to an extent already when I was a, a, a lecturer at St. Philip's College. But now, of course, I think I'm in a much better position to do that in a much more sincere way. You also uh, worked at the uh, Corey Mila Peace and Reconciliation Center in Northern Ireland. Can you talk about that? And from your work there, have you found there is a spiritual side to peace building? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Corey Mila, in particular, has a very interesting history. Um, I, uh, one of my many jobs at Corey Mila is that if we had people just randomly show up to the site, I would give them a, a talking tour. I would sit them down, I'd tell them about the history of the place, and then I'd walk them around. Um, and the way it was founded was uh, absolutely fascinating. And, and you want to talk about spiritual. The guy that founded it was a guy named Ray Davey, and he was a Presbyterian minister. And um, he was a very peace-loving guy. Um, and when World War II broke out, he volunteered for the Red Cross. And then when Belfast in particular was blitzed, he you know, wound up linking up with an army battalion. And the army battalion, the British army battalion, uh, went all over. Um, you can buy his diaries. They're called Ray Davies' War Diaries. You can find them online and look them up if you want. Um, but he wound up in North Africa. Um, during the big campaign, you know, that's Rommel pushing across the desert and the Battle of El Amin, all this other stuff. Uh, his unit was defeated and captured at the Battle of Tobruk. And um, he at that point, because he was technically in the Red Cross, they said, well, you can go home. And he said, no, I'd rather stay with my men because I'm their chaplain. And I want to give them spiritual comfort at this time of great need. And little did he know, he was really going to end up in some of the worst places in the world because they then sent him off to a Nazi POW camp. And he got shipped from POW camp to POW camp. Um, and finally, after you know being sent across Europe for years, uh, the last POW camp he was in was just outside of Dresden. 
And after Dresden was bombed in 1945, and this is, of course, napalm had just been invented. Um, speaking of, of lousy weapons, napalm had just been invented. And um, the Allies decided to bomb downtown Dresden, not you know the military base near Dresden, but they actually bombed the city center. And we don't know exactly how many people died in the firebombing of Dresden, but it was in the tens of thousands. It's between 20 and, I think, 35,000 people died. Um, and the Nazis took the POWs and just made them clean up the bodies uh, after Dresden was over. And so here's young Ray Davy cleaning up the bodies. And he's sitting there thinking to himself, you know, if we're the good guys and we're doing this Something's wrong. And so he goes back to Northern Ireland, deeply moved by this experience of having survived World War II. Uh, he reconnects with his, his love from before the war. They get married. Uh, really beautiful, touching love story. And one of their childhood, not childhood, sorry, one of their young, <laughs> they, were, they were, you know, in their 20s when they met. Um, one of their young romantic getty, getaways was to um, Corimila, which at that time was just a hotel in Ballycastle, Northern Ireland. Um, and they loved the hotel, and they had this great little honeymoon there. And uh, and when the place got a little bit dilapidated in the 1960s, it went up for sale, and he just decided he was going to buy it and turn it into an ecumenical peace center. He had been the chaplain of Queen's University in Belfast, and he'd been working with you know soldiers that had PTSD from World War II. He'd been working with students, uh, who you know Catholic and Protestant students, British and Irish students that had could see that there was a conflict coming. He he had his eyes open. He could say something's wrong in our society, and we need to start building better bridges across our, our community lines. And so in 1965, um, he bought. Uh, the little hotel that him and his wife Kathleen had had their honeymoon in, or their romantic getaway in, and uh, and they turned it into a peace and reconciliation center. Uh, and at that time, it was just a retreat for students. But when the troubles really got going and people were getting burned out of their homes, he turned the hotel into a halfway house for people who had gotten burned out of their homes. And a lot of the people, you know, you were maybe you were a Protestant that got burned out of your home by the IRA, or maybe you were a Catholic that got burned out of your home by the UVF. And then you'd go to Corimila to find a safe respite from, from the troubles. And you would be right across the hallway from somebody who had gotten burned out of their house by somebody from the opposite community. Community. And, you know, that was the beginning of some of their uh, group work, some of their most sincere group work. And so it's uh, it's often refers to itself as an open Christian community with an emphasis on both words, because obviously it had this foundation from a Presbyterian minister, but it's open to all people of all backgrounds or, um, you know, whether you're of any faith or no faith and you can work there. But it still has a really profound sense of peace about it. Uh, when you just go up there, I was back there this summer. Um, and, and I was able to just walk around the site a little bit, um, you know, when I was going around Europe. And, it, uh, and it's just always been such an incredibly peaceful place, a very spiritual place. It's a very beautiful uh, spot in the world. And, and I think that it really does a good job of, of having this model of, you know, if people are having trouble somewhere else, you can bring them to Corimila and it feels like a safe place for everybody. And then people can really open and talk openly about their their issues there. When I worked there in 2011, 2012, you know, one of the groups I worked on, um, I was just a, an assistant mediator that we had a, a main mediator who did the hard work and I just helped him out. Um, but, you know, we had a, a room where we had former combatants meeting each other 
for the first time. And I mean, you know, people in the room had had fights with other people in the room, and here they were all these years later trying to make peace with each other. And Corey Mila gave them a safe space where they could do that, where they could actually open up and have these difficult conversations, which probably wouldn't have been easy to have in other places. And and Corey Mila just gave you this profound sense of calm and peace that uh, that you could be open with people, even people that you had thought of as enemies. Okay. So, um, back in uh, Texas where you're teaching, what's Texas known for other than um, voter restriction and love of guns? Oh, boy. You really, really decided to go right for the jugular there. Uh, I'm, uh, it's, it's bad. You know, Texas has this international reputation as being this uh, really conservative uh, sort of stuffy place. Uh, that all these bad things happen. But when I lived in Texas, I personally had a really great time living there. Um, in terms of answering your question directly, I, the thing that I wish Texas was known for was, you know, obviously it's the it's that where NASA is headquartered, so you can go to Houston and uh, and you can go visit NASA. You can meet an astronaut. I actually got to do that. I got to go and meet an astronaut in Houston, Texas. Um, you... Uh, you can uh, have all sorts of fun adventures. You can go horseback riding. You can, you know, see the hills. You can celebrate Oktoberfest in a little uh, uh, Texas Deutsch country. Um, I, I really wish uh, Texas was known for its food. That was my favorite thing about living in Texas. I never ate better in my life than when I was living in Texas. Um, everybody in Texas has their own secret barbecue recipe. Even I do. Even having only been there five and a half years, even I have a secret barbecue recipe. My uh, cousin Bobby actually uh, has his own spice mix called Crazy Bob's. And uh, I have it shipped to me in New Zealand so I can put it on my food because uh, it's so good. And, uh, and you know, every restaurant is amazing. You can go in these little restaurants. There's a great place called uh, Angel's Mexican Food Haven uh, that was right around the corner from my university. And it was just it really lived up to the name. It was heaven. And you go in there and you could get a full meal for well less than $10. And it was just huge. I had to, every time I ordered a burrito, I had to cut the burrito in half and take half of it home to be dinner <laughs> or lunch the next day because, I mean, the portion sizes were just so massive and it tasted so good I didn't want to stop eating. Uh, so, I mean, that's the thing I wish Texas was known for was, um, you know, the great food and, you know, great music, great people. San Antonio in particular had this really vibrant um, art scene. Uh, it, it was founded by the Spanish, or I guess the Tonkawa uh, nation founded it well before the Spanish arrived, but it's home to the old Spanish missions, which date back to the 1730s. And um, and it has this really fascinating history, this fascinating heritage. It's where the Battle of the Alamo happened. Um, it's had all sorts of interesting things happen since then. Uh, and it also has the Riverwalk, which um, we're about to come to the Christmas season and the river walk has over 200 cypress trees that line the river walk and it's like walking through you know sort of a texas version of venice you're just walking 
around. So you have these beautiful old cobblestone streets with these big cypress trees um, and the river flowing through them and the little Venetian-style bridges. But then you have skyscrapers next to them. Uh, and so it's really quite a unique experience. And then in Christmas, they take all 200-plus cypress trees and turn them into Christmas trees. And so you walk through during Christmas time, and you can go and have you know this wonderful dinner that's very cheap and very good and then you're just walking around this magical christmas winter wonderland uh it's really a lovely lovely city oh and the astros just won the world series i wish texas was known for that great baseball team so there you go all right what's your as a young american from virginia which how do you see the political and social future of the united states on on a good day yeah well first off Young is probably stretching it. I am in my 30s. I mean, I'm young as compared maybe to a man who met Martin Luther King, like yourself. But I don't I don't know if uh, other people think I'm young. Uh, But nonetheless, yeah, um, I uh, I grew up in Virginia and uh, I grew up right next to Washington, D.C. And especially, you know, um, the January 6th events in 2021, um, I, I would consider it, you know, an attack. Uh, a lot of people say riot, but I think it was pre-planned. I think the evidence now shows it was pre-planned, you know, and those people died and uh, the police officer was murdered. Two more police officers committed suicide. And to see my hometown get attacked like that um, and to see the Capitol building, um, you know, the place where Abraham Lincoln lied in state. You know, people, you know, smearing feces on the walls was just horrific. And that really filled me with a sense of dread and anger that I still haven't fully processed. Um, and, And so that was really disturbing to me. And for a period of time, I thought to myself, man, you know. I bet these guys are just going to get away with it. I bet they're they're going to be able to wriggle their way out legally somehow. But that hasn't happened. The the people that actually committed the attack are now, you know, either sentenced or on trial. Uh, a number of the planners are now on trial, um, especially with the hearings we had over the summer from the January 6th committee. You know, they were really able to show very clearly how it was preplanned and how um, – how the the Trump administration's election denial led directly to it, um, and and I think that one of the heartening things from this mo- most recent election, and you know, I, I have lots of friends and family that are conservative, and and they're probably just as well happy that the Republicans won the the Congress, uh, the House of Representatives, but I think the elections I was most worried about were actually these state elections where you had a lot of people running for like attorney de- uh, general or, or comptroller or something like that, who were election deniers that was still holding on to this lie that the 2020 election was stolen, and those people. I think just about all of them got defeated. And that gives me a lot of hope that I think that um, the fever is breaking and people are beginning to realize that they got lied to, that they got taken for a ride, and that what happened on January 6th is wrong and the people that did it should be punished. And and I think that that's important. I also, you know, I think that cynicism is a form of laziness, that it allows people to claim to be intellectuals but to then retreat from trying to make a difference. And and I don't think we should ever allow ourselves to become cynics. I think in the past couple of years, really seen profound, huge people's movements in the United States, you know, whether it's around racial justice or um, against, you know, mass shootings or, you know, um, women's rights. I think uh, even all, Amazon, even Amazon. Yeah. Even those guys. <laughs> I mean, the unions. And- yeah. 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 Uh, you know, um, yeah. Huge union campaigns back in 2019 for teachers, especially. So I, uh, I was really happy 
happy to see those movements. So that gives me a lot of hope. Well, thanks a lot, uh, uh, Matthew Fuller, for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Marvin. It's great. And um, really enjoyed the discussion with you. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you, too. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the Air.